girls. Well, I invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. Those children who'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church. And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It's on page 1040. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1040. And uh, just a reminder, our missions banquet and missions week is coming up February 25th. Uh, so if, if you haven't already signed up downstairs, there's a huge sign-up board for our international uh, potluck. It's, it's great. It's, it's a totally great feed, man. It, it's such good food. I highly recommend it. And we have missionary speakers. So that's kind of like the centerpiece of our missions week is that banquet. So if you've never been before and you're new to the church, and you want to, you know, get into it, this is sort of a great entry point is to come to that missions banquet, meet some other people, and just hear what God's doing around the world. So, like, after the service, go right downstairs and sign up. And then, you know, there's recipes, and we have recipes from different cultures and different countries. It's awesome. It's a great thing. And if you haven't done so already, uh, fill out your missions pledge card and send that into the church. Or, uh, this is the time of year where we're raising the budget for our missions uh, and this money does not go to our church. This is not for the lights. It's not for my salary or the, you know, heating the place. It's for our missionaries around the world. And so every year, this time of year, we raise that budget. So if you just remember that, we'd like to have those cards turned in by Sunday, February 25th. So two Sundays. So I, I know you, meant, you mean to do it. You procrastinate like I do. So just a reminder to be on top of that. All right, let's look at our text, Luke chapter 19. And today we're studying verses 11 to 27, the parable of the ten minus. Let me just read the text, Luke chapter 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Your mina has earned five more. His master said, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I would have, could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. 
He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So, what happens in your office when the boss is out for the afternoon? What happens to productivity there? Uh, you know, do the lunches get a little longer? Do the uh, people go home a little bit earlier? Is there a little more Minesweeper and Solitaire being played on the computers? What, what happens in your classroom when the teacher has to step out for a few minutes? And what would happen if the teacher stepped out for the whole class? I mean, what would ensue? I remember when I was uh, just engaged to my wife, I actually, that's when I first moved out here to Massachusetts, and I uh, worked for her father, uh, for my father-in-law for a summer. He, he owns cranberry bogs, and I was sort of a, I guess just sort of a grunt laborer on the cranberry bogs, pulling weeds and, you know, doing all kinds of back-breaking work. And I, I'm convinced to this day that he took a very sick pleasure in watching me out in the fields, you know, in the sweltering heat being bitten by bugs. I mean, I can really relate to the whole story of, you know, Jacob working for Rachel and all that. But uh, fortunately, you know, I only had to marry one of his daughters, so that's the good side. But anyway, I, I remember one day I was out there and we were weeding a cranberry bog, just bending over, pulling weeds and doing this thing. And the uh, foreman in charge of our crew had to step out. And so he got in his truck and went away for a little bit. And so I'm just working away, and I hear behind me, hey! And I turn around, and all of the other workers are just sitting on the ground doing nothing. And they look at me, and they go, what are you doing? Take it easy. And, and, and that was sort of the attitude. And, and that's a lot of people's attitude is, you know, when the boss is away, the mice will, you know, do nothing. They'll just sit around and, and uh, kick back. And, and I bring that story up because really as Christians, we're in a similar kind of situation. The boss is away. Jesus is not here. Well, he's here. He's here through his Holy Spirit. He's here through the power of his word. But he's not physically here. I mean, think about what that must have been like to be a disciple of Jesus back then, having Jesus right there living with you. I mean, you think your Christian life might have been a little different? If Jesus was saying, uh, why are you doing that right there with you? But we don't have that right now. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried. He was raised. As the Apostles' Creed says, he ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. But we live in between that period from when he ascends to the Father and when he comes back. The boss is away for a little bit. And so in his absence, he calls us to a vibrant, productive Christian lifestyle for him while he's gone. That's what this text is about. It's about life as a Christian in between times. In between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming as the conquering king. And so we live in this kind of in-between waiting period. And we wonder where he is and when is he coming back. And so during this time, he calls us not to sit around on our buckets you know, while the, the foreman is gone and we don't weed and we don't do anything. We're supposed to be hard at work for Christ in his absence. And so that's the story. Look at verse 11. It says, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
So here's Jesus. He's not in Jerusalem. He's near it. Uh, just pop quiz. Two weeks ago, where is he? Do you remember what town he's in? He's in Jericho, which is about a day's walk from Jerusalem. And so he's near Jerusalem, and everybody around him knows he's going to Jerusalem. And there's this expectation among the crowds and among the disciples that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to establish the kingdom of God. They believe this could be the Messiah, this could be the time. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to lead a revolution and overthrow the Romans and establish God's kingdom. But what, of course, the people don't understand is that he's not going to Jerusalem to be the conquering king. He's going to be crucified like a criminal. And not only that, they also don't understand that there's going to be this delay between his resurrection and his coming in glory as the king. And he's been kind of warning them about this. Maybe you remember some of this in the Gospel of Luke. But now the time is going to finally come where he's going to go back up to heaven and then he's gone. And in that interim period, he calls us as Christians to productive, fruitful living while the boss is out. And so he tells this parable. That's what the whole thing is. It's a parable geared to inspire us to live for Christ uh, fruitfully and productively in his absence. So let's look at the parable, verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, that, that may sound a little funny. Like, why did he have to go to another country to become king of his own country? Remember, you know, this is the Roman Empire. And so if you're going to be the king of your little fiefdom, you had to travel to Rome to the emperor, and the emperor would anoint you the king, and then you would go back. That's what happened to King Herod the Great. That's what happened to his son Archelaus in 4 BC. He had to go to Rome to become king and then go back. So Jesus is talking about how politics worked back then. And he says, uh, verse 13, he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, a mina is not a lot of money. Uh, it's about a pound and a half. That's what it would be in today's measurements. So it was about a pound and a half of silver, maybe three months' wages, not a lot of money, really. So he gives him this little deposit. He says, here's your little handful of money. You know, here's your allowance. And while I'm gone, I want you to take this little allowance and I want you to make money with it. Do business. You know, whatever you want to do, but, but do commerce, do business. And when I come back, I want to return on my money. <clears throat> Verse 14, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. So there's uh, also in the story, there apparently are some other citizens who don't want this man to rule, and so they go and protest it. So what does all of this mean? That's the story. Right? we got the basic story. I wouldn't call this story an allegory, but it's heading that direction. There are a lot of allegorical kind of elements in the story. There's a lot of points of contact in the story. And, you know, maybe you get it, maybe you read it and you understand what the story's about, but, you know, I'm kind of simple the way I approach Scripture. I like, I like to lay things out on the table, so let me just quickly lay this out. All right, first of all, who's the king who goes away and comes back? That's Jesus. All right, good. You're with me. Great. And he goes away, and, and his departure and return, as we've come to see, is the time between his first coming and second coming, and we're waiting for that return of the king. That's what we're waiting for. And then... The second thing are the servants. Who are the servants? I think that's the disciples. That's followers of Jesus Christ. That's people who would say that I am a Christian, I follow Christ. And he's given to each one of us a mina. And, you know, what's the mina? Well, it's, it's tough to say exactly, but I think it's just kind of like our whole lives. It's everything he's given us. 
It's your money, certainly, but it's more than your money. It's your home and it's your car and it's your uh, aptitudes. You have different, some of you have different abilities, different skills. That's part of what God has given you. It's uh, your circles of relationships, your families, your friends, the people with whom you have uh, influence in the marketplace or in the neighborhood. It's everything that's your life, your, uh, your training, your career, all the things that you would sort of put on a list and say, this is what I have going for me. <laughs> that's the mina that God has given you. All the things in your life, including your body and your mind and everything. And it's a gift from God to you. And then uh, finally, we should just probably touch on this. Who are the subjects who hated Jesus? Well, I, I think in, in the immediate context of the story, it's just a reminder that when he goes to Jerusalem, the people are not going to welcome him as king. They're going to want to crucify him. And I think more broadly, it, it refers to anyone who rejects Christ openly and with hostility and says, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. So now let's pull this all together. All right? So what's the point of the story? The point of the story is, while the king is away getting his kingdom, we as his servants should be diligent and hard at work serving Christ, you know, leveraging our lives with everything we have, everything that's part of our little mina, serving Christ and, and advancing his glory and spreading the gospel, seeing everything in our lives as an opportunity, an opportunity to glorify God and proclaim the name of Christ, whether through word or through our deeds. <clears throat> See, Christianity is not like sitting in an airport waiting for a plane. I think some of people say it. It's like, here I am, I'm just in this miserable life, waiting for the plane to heaven to take off, and I don't know when that's going to be, but, you know, I just sort of endure, bored, waiting for the kingdom of God to come. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a, it's a very vibrant kind of existence, if you really embrace it. It's entrepreneurial. It's active. It's energetic. It's like, you know, someone giving you a mine and says, go, make some money. What do I do? I don't know. You figure it out. And so, so there's a sense of adventure and creativity and excitement to the Christian life. As we now perceive all of my existence as a gift to be used to love others and to love God and glorify his name, everything that I have, whether you have a lot or whether you have not very much, whether you're rich or whether you're just scraping by, whether you've got a powerful job or an insignificant job, whether you're really gifted or you're not really smart at all, whether you have lots of friends or no friends, whether you're single or married, whatever that is, it's not how much you have, it's what you do with it. And so we're called to be faithful with whatever it is God has put into our hands for his glory. I think of that verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Some of you memorize this verse. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. That's a wonderful oxymoron, isn't it? A living sacrifice. What a picture of Christianity that is. That my life is to be poured out for God while alive. I'm a living sacrifice. Now here's the $64,000 question. Do you and I perceive our lives through these categories? Do I normally think of my existence through these uh, types of paradigms? Do I think of myself as fundamentally, above all else, a servant of Jesus? That I am here to do whatever Jesus wants me to do. Is that how I conceive of my life? You know, sometimes... <laughs> 
like Clay was saying, on my better days when I'm following Christ, but sometimes not. Um, and how do you think of the things that you have in your life, whether you have a little or a lot? Do you think of it as on loan from God, as a gift from God to be used for His glory? And do you perceive the purpose of your life as to leverage everything in your life in order to love others and to proclaim God's kingdom and to glorify God and spread the gospel? Is that how you see the purpose of your existence? Or have we bought into the parable that the world is telling us? Because there's another parable out there. There's the world's parable. And in that parable, things are different. In the world's parable, Jesus isn't the king. <clears throat> I'm the king. That's the world's parable. And I'm in charge, and I do what I want, and I live how I want, and I use my resources how I want because I'm the king. And, and if I believe in God at all, well, and I'm honest, I'll say that, well, God is there to serve me. I'm the king and God's the servant. And so, God, why haven't you given me what I think I deserve from you? And so I'm not going to believe in you right now because I'm upset because you're not giving me what I want. Uh, and so in the world's parable, the things in our lives are not gifts from God to be used for him. The things in our lives are things that I earned, in fact, that I deserve. There's a sense of entitlement in the world's parable. And, of course, in the world's parable, the point of life is not to pour myself out like a living sacrifice for God. It's that, you know, people should be sacrificing for me. And it's about my needs and my... Uh, my self-actualization and my self-esteem and you know, self, self, self. It's about me being happy and people conforming their lives so that my life is comfortable in the way I want it to be, including God. God should do the same thing for me. <clears throat> and I really believe that that, that is the default mode of existence. That I don't, I don't have any statistics on this, but if I was you know, a betting man from Las Vegas, I would wager that, uh, that there are millions and tens of millions of Americans for whom the essence of their existence is essentially to earn money so they can come home and, and buy food and eat out at restaurants and watch TV. That's life. That's the, the highlight is, you know, sweeps week, right? That, that's what their life is essentially about. And so it's bread and circuses. It's the old Roman bread and circuses, except the bread's delivered to your door and, you know, the circus is piped in you know, via cable, but it's the same kind of thing. And, you know, of course, and this is from a guy who likes watching movies and things, so I'm not, you know, some, you know, extreme fundamentalist here. I'm just saying I, I, I observe this in our lives, that we see that as sort of the essence of living and how different that is from the Christian life. You know, one of my uh, heroes from church history, my favorite guys, is George Whitfield. I love George Whitfield. In fact, he's one of, probably one of the greatest men in all of church history. He's got to be up there with, like, Luther and... Augustine and those greats. But uh, Whitfield lived in the early 1700s, and he was the foremost figure of the Great Awakening in England and in North America at the time. Uh, you know, you've heard of Edwards, you've heard of John Wesley, but Whitfield was even greater than them in that day. He was more well known, he was the lead figurehead of the movement. And God used him profoundly to change the world in his day because he was so sold out and completely given over to the work of God. In fact, here's what he did. He had a diary. And at the end of every day, he would open up his diary, and he would analyze what he did in his day every hour. So he'd start whenever he got up and say, what did I do that hour? And he would critique himself. He would say, was it wasted? Did I sin? Did I glorify God? How could I have honored God more in that conversation? And he would you know, ruthlessly, rigorously analyze his life 
to be sure that he was leveraging it for God's glory. It's like a pro athlete, you know, who counts every calorie and how much sleep am I getting and what weights am I using when. You know, just honing his life. He was like a pro Christian. He gave himself that rigorously. And we may look at that and say, well, that's a little bit extreme. That's a little bit obsessive. I mean, you know, where's the grace and all that kind of stuff? But, you know, in his defense, we're on the other extreme. I think we're obsessive in the other direction of, of just not caring at all and being so obsessed with our own comfort and our own lives. And maybe that would be a good exercise for us to do or, or something like that. Here you go. Here's a homework assignment. You know, what, what should you do with this sermon? Go home this afternoon. Take a piece of paper when you've got some spare time this evening and just start writing down on the piece of paper the things that God has given you. What's your mina? Write at the top of the piece of paper, my mina. And start listing people you know, the areas of influence that you've been given, the relationships in your neighborhood, the money that you have, the home, the, the boat, the car, whatever. Just list, say, this is what God has given me. And then begin asking God, how can I serve you with these things? How can I glorify you? I mean, it might be eye-opening just to see what God has given us. And we need to do that. We need to be servants. We need to have our lives poured out for Christ as living sacrifices. And the reason we need to do it is because the king is coming back. There will be an audit. There will be a day of accounting. This is a heavy text. I, you know, I'm not going to make, not going to deny that. This is a, a really challenging text because it's the day of judgment that's pictured here when Christ returns. Look at verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. So here we have in vision the judgment day when Christ calls us to make a full accounting for how we've used our lives for him. And in this accounting, there's essentially three verdicts that are passed down. We'll look at each of them in turn, especially the first two, which are the largest chunk of this. But the first verdict is this. In the first verdict, the master rewards the faithful, productive servants. So that's the first thing that's going to happen at the judgment day. Jesus is going to reward faithful, productive servants. So look at verse 16. The first one came to him and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And look at the generosity of the master. You've been faithful with one little mina, which is nothing. So I'm going to give you ten cities. And people, what a picture that is of what it will be like when Christ returns in glory and, and rewards those who faithfully served him with their lives. <laughs> ten cities. People say, what's heaven going to be like? I don't know if I want to go there. It sounds kind of boring. You know, how good can it be? Well, it's the difference between the mina that is your life and the ten cities of heaven that God is going to give you. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for his saints. He has a great reward for you. And so, you know, I think that the point of this is be faithful with what God has given you, with your little mina. Because notice that what he says there in verse 17. He says, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of an enormously huge matter. 
and we look at our lives and we go, oh, you know, I'm not anybody. I don't really have anything. I don't have that much money. I don't have that much influence. My job kind of stinks, blah, blah, blah. And, and so we look at our lives and we say, I'm not really very much. And you're not. But that doesn't matter. It's not the size of the gifts you have. It's whether or not you are faithful with whatever it is God has given you and called you to do. That's what God is looking for. Faithfulness and service to Him and what it is. Um, I had a real blessing last week. Uh, Dr. Kuzma, you know, preached. Was he awesome or what? I mean, oh. I'm just going to send him a note and say, you basically have an open invitation. If you just want to preach, just tell me whatever Sunday it is, even if it's Easter, and you just come and preach, and I will step aside because that was just amazing. I, I was so blessed. But anyway, I wanted my wife to hear the sermon. She wasn't here at 8.30. But then I found out that she was doing child care in the 11. So I, I wanted her to hear it. So, this is how desperate I was. I actually went and subbed in for her at child care because uh, I really wanted her to hear the sermon. So anyway, I, I went downstairs, and you know we tag-team after I introduced Dr. Kuzmich, and she ran up and heard the sermon. And so I got to be in the room with all the little two- and three- and four-year-olds. And, you know, it, it was a blessing. Um, you know, the kids, besides the kids being so cute, I was really blessed just by the servant attitude of the people who were in the child care room. You know, there was one little girl who pretty much screamed the whole time. <laughs> it's one of your kids. I'm not going to say who, but it's one of yours. And she was screaming and screaming, and this woman just kept holding her. You know, she never was like, oh, you know, why am I here? And this stinks, and I can't. You know, she's just loving this kid and, you know, trying everything, feeding her with Cheerios and all the stuff you try to do to get kids to be happy. And, and you know, just the way these, these people loved those children and were serving those children. And I was, I was just touched by that humble service. Nobody knows who they were. They're way back down in the child care room. You might say, oh, what a waste of my time. I could have been doing something else. But that's the kind of faithfulness that Christ calls us to. And then the parents come, and, and you know, who knows how God's going to use that? Who knows what kinds of unconscious impressions about the church those loving moments with those kids are making on those kids? Who knows how they're being shaped for God's glory? Who knows what God did in the lives of those parents who had a free moment to come and listen to God's word. Who knows what kind of positive input input they've had in their marriage all week. Maybe it's been a bad week. Maybe they've been at each other's throats all week. And this was a time to sit down and to worship and to hear God's word. And it was facilitated because somebody was a faithful servant in a really small thing of feeding animal crackers to little kids. But that's what God does. He takes our small acts of service and uses them. And you know, another example I was thinking of this. I, I could just go on and on. I had to cut out tons of examples from this sermon of people I know who are being faithful in small ways. But, you know, I could go on and on. You know, another one I thought of is is the money that we give to the missions budget since we're on that topic and that's coming up in our church's life. You know, every, every year we make this missions budget and I give some money to the missions budget. It's not a lot. You know, it's, it's what I can give. And our church gathers this missions budget together. Last year we gave $300,000 to missions, which is a lot of money. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, it's not that much money, really. It, that only goes so far. And that's what our church gave to missions. And you can look at that and say, well, that's not a lot. I mean, why don't we use that money for something else? And, you know, and I could look at my life. And if I looked at how much money I gave to world missions last year, and I had kept that money for myself, you know, I could have a nice surround sound theater system in my house, really. <laughs> you know, I could have used it for that different purpose. And, and so you think, well, you know, I'm just sort of giving this money away and sort of goes nowhere. And it's hard to make ends meet. And then I get an email from Sean Keith, one of our missionaries. And so you know Sean. He's with Athletes in Action. 
And uh, he was down at the Super Bowl. It's sort of a sports ministry. And, and there at the Super Bowl, they had this uh, breakfast that they have on Saturday morning. Uh, I think it's like 2,300 guys come to this breakfast. And they share the gospel. Uh, Coach Dungy from the Colts, he probably knows an outspoken Christian. He gets up at this thing and shares his faith. And out of this, you know, hundreds of guys say, I, I want to get into a Bible study. I want to grow in my faith. Another hundred guys indicated that they wanted to take a step of putting their faith in Christ. And so, you know, while the world is watching the commercials and, and the, the game, and, you know, when we all laugh at those things, God is using our little bits of money that we use for his glory, and he's leveraging it through guys like Sean and other missionaries to, you know, literally reach thousands and millions. It's an amazing thing how God does that. It's a worthwhile investment. But it doesn't seem like that sometimes when you're just putting your money in, when you're serving in the nursery, you're leading your little Bible study. You come home and read the Bible story to the kids even though you're tired and they're not really listening. You don't think they are. But you just keep doing it. And you keep loving that really irritating, obtuse person at work. And you keep reaching out to the people in your neighborhood and praying for your neighborhood. And it's like, oh, is this doing anything? I'm just slaving away. It all matters. God uses it, and God will reward it greatly when he returns. So I, I think this text is a huge encouragement for those of you faithful servants who are serving Christ just to keep doing what you're doing. Look with the eyes of faith at the eternal picture and the eyes of faith at what God can do with what you've given him. And boy, I wish I could end the sermon right there. But there's another verdict, and I have to be faithful to the text. And the second verdict is to the servant who didn't do anything with what was given him. Verse 18. The second one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. So here's the servant. He didn't do anything. He just took it, put in a Kleenex, stuck it under his bed. He said, I don't want to mess with it. I'm freaked out by this master. He's going to hurt me. But, I mean, come on. Has this servant not seriously misunderstood who the master is? This master just gave ten cities to a guy who earned ten minas. He's not hard and cruel. This is a gracious master. This is a kind and merciful master. And so this servant has totally misunderstood what the master is like. And so in fear, he has not done anything for the master because, because he didn't really know who he was. And so as a result, the master says, take away his, give it to the other guy. And everyone's like, what? He already has ten. doesn't matter. In God's economy, those who are faithful are graciously given more. And those who have rejected Christ and not served him, even what he gave them is taken away from them. And I think that this second servant and this second verdict really applies to what I would call nominal disciples. People who are disciples of Jesus in name only. Because, you know, in Jesus' day, there's Jesus, and there's the disciples around him. He's got this huge crowd of wannabe disciples and groupies. And, you know, some of them are serious, and some of them are just along because, wow, it's really cool to see Jesus do miracles. But they're not really disciples of Jesus. And, and that's how it always is, even in the church. In the church, you have people who really know Christ, and you have people who are there who maybe like the sermons or they like the music or the fellowship or they get something for their kids in the youth or children's ministry. And that's good. Those are all good things. But they've never 
come to know Christ themselves. They're not really saved. They're not really Christians. They just have some social, outward, religious behaviors like being a part of church. Who knows? You may have even been baptized at church and gone to church your whole life being forced there by your parents. But that doesn't mean that you're a Christian. And I just have to be really candid with you. I'm deeply concerned that many people, perhaps, in this church fall into the second category. That you don't know Christ as your Savior. I'm deeply concerned about that. And not in a judgmental way. As your pastor. You know, it's like, what do pastors do all week? Well, among other things, I cry out to God for your souls. I pray for your children. And I pray that you won't just have a superficial outward religion where you like church and you like the music and you like the programs, but you're not a Christian. You haven't been born again. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's his words. That's not you know, right-wing evangelical words. Those are Jesus' words. Have you been changed by the power of God? Are you really saved? Because I, I would hate to see any of us stand before the Christ on the judgment day, on the day of accounting, and Jesus says, well, what did you do with it? And you say, well, um, you know, I went to that church, and you know, I, I liked the preacher or the music or whatever you like, and I met some nice people there, or there was a great program for moms or for men or for women or whatever. And Jesus says, no, what did you do with it? Did you serve me? Did your life serve the kingdom of God? Because that's the evidence of being a Christian. It is a life of service and fruitfulness. And you say, well, I, I don't know. And Jesus says, well, what would you do with those kids I gave you? Well, I, I took them to lacrosse and, and ballet and gymnastics. And, and they were very active in extracurricular activities. Yeah, but did you read the scriptures to them, Dad? You're the priest of the house. Did you read the scriptures to them? Well, I was pretty busy. <laughs> did you pray for your kids? Uh, did you share the gospel with your kids? And what about, you know, the friends I gave you? Oh, yeah, thanks, Jesus. I had some great friends. We had some great laughs. I was at a Super Bowl party with them. No. Did you pray for your friends? Were you reaching out for them? And you say, you know, honestly, I didn't think of my friends that way. That's the point. You weren't really on board with Christ. And so you didn't see your life as an offering and a sacrifice to Him. And you say, well, Jesus, uh, you know, when I was at that youth camp, when I was 15, I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. Okay, but how do you know if you really received Jesus? Because you prayed a prayer went forward an altar call? An altar call is not an evidence of salvation. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. An evidence of salvation is a changed life over time. That's how you know if you're really saved. Not because you prayed a prayer 20 years ago and you didn't do anything with it. It doesn't mean anything. It's a changed life. And so, you know, I'm sorry if I'm acting hyper, but I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate that you be saved. I'm praying that you know Christ. I don't want to stand as your pastor on the judgment day with you and see some of you on the other side. I want you to be there as my flock. I want you to know the Savior. And not just for the sweet by and by, for the here and now. Because this is where the real life is in Christ. This is where the adventure is. 
is in serving Christ with your life. And so where are you with the Savior? Have you really come to receive Christ? Don't have a superficial religion. And I really, really wish I could end the sermon right there. But unfortunately, there's one more verdict, and we have to be faithful to the Scriptures. And so verse 27 is the third verdict. He says, Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. There is an even harsher verdict for those who openly and with hostility reject the name of Jesus. If you reject Jesus forever to your dying day, then he will reject you. And uh, he's the king. (laughs) We have to worship the king and serve him. And when Christ comes again, he will come as the judge and the holy king in righteousness. You know, my wife is involved in uh, some extracurricular activities, and she has some friends who, outside of the church, do those activities. And anyway, one of her friends kind of was on email list with her, and this friend is always sending emails, and this friend's not a Christian. And my wife pretty much has to delete all the emails because they're pretty much all just dirty jokes that this woman sends out to you know, all her friends. And, but, you know, this one she sent uh, wasn't a dirty joke. It was, uh, it was this mocking email. My wife showed it to me this week. Mocking biblical morality and biblical teaching. It was just, you know, so cynical and nasty. And I was just reading that, and my heart was grieved because I was like, wow, there's people out there putting this stuff on email. You know, be careful what you put on email. <laughs> it sticks around, right? I think Jesus saves those emails. And what's going to happen on the judgment day when he says, all right, you know, exhibit 1,468 in the case against you. <laughs> this email. A life lived in open mockery against Christ will receive harsh judgment. And so if that's where you're at, I would just urge you to rethink your path and and start asking questions. Don't just write off the Bible and write off Christ. You need to look into it for the sake of your own souls. And so where are you with Christ? When Christ comes, what kind of judgment will you receive? Let us all, let us all see ourselves as slaves of Jesus. Let us see the things in our lives as alone from Him to be used for His glory. And let us, with reckless abandon, I don't care if you're old or if you're a teenager, if you're single or you're married, whatever you have, let's live recklessly, serving Christ and pouring out our lives for Him as living sacrifices with an eye to that kingdom. And so be encouraged and serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this challenging text. Thank you for the way it's challenged me this week, for the the way you've challenged me to think about my life and my time and my resources. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would would strive to be pro-Christians whose lives are trimmed down and given over to the work of your gospel. Lord, I pray that those with money would give generously, that those with time would serve generously, that those with gifts would use their gifts generously, that those who are weak and homebound and all they can do really is pray and write encouraging notes, that they would pray generously, that whatever you've given us, Lord, we would serve you faithfully. And Lord, I pray that if there is anybody here who thinks they're a Christian but is are truly not saved, that, Lord, you would 
be gracious to them and show them now, not on the judgment day, but show them now that they need to receive Christ. That like Clay said, they, they need to, to get on the van, be humble enough to get on the van and go receive Christ. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's just openly hostile to the gospel, that Jesus, you would show your grace to them even as you showed it to the Apostle Paul who was so hostile to you before you saved him. And so, Lord, make us a productive church. I pray that we as a congregation would be found faithful on the day when you return. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And by singing number 597, the song of consecration, Take my life and let it be consecrated. Number 597.